Hello, and welcome to DE Classified, a podcast showcasing the history of destroyer escorts. Each month, a member of the USS Slater's education crew will highlight a specific destroyer escort and share the stories of the sailors who served aboard these trim but deadly ships. My name is Giordano Romano. I am an intern and tour guide aboard the USS Slater in Albany, New York. I am a history student attending University of Albany, and my area of study is military history. Today, we are going to DE classify USS Kirk, DE-1087, a Knox-class destroyer escort. The USS Kirk was named in honor of Admiral Allen Goodrich Kirk, who had served in the United States Navy in both World War I and World War II, although he would play a much larger role in the latter. During the Second World War, Admiral Kirk was initially part of the Office of Naval Intelligence, but due to personal disagreements and constant obstruction by Rear Admiral Richmond Turner, he requested a transfer, which would be granted. By 1942, Admiral Kirk would serve as an amphibious commander in the Mediterranean theater. He would take part in the Allied invasions of Sicily, Operation Husky, and Italy, Operation Avalanche. He was also the naval commander during the Normandy landings on June 6, 1944, serving aboard the heavy cruiser USS Augusta. Kirk would retire from the United States Navy in 1946 at the rank of full admiral, and was even decorated by the provisional government of the French Republic, earning him the Legion of Honor, France's highest order of merit. After his retirement, Kirk began a diplomatic career in 1946. Under the Truman administration, he would serve in an interesting post, being both the U.S. ambassador to Belgium and the U.S. envoy to Luxembourg at the same time. He held both posts from 1946 until 1949. Starting in July 1949, he served as U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union until October 1951. After a short lull, he would once again serve as a U.S. ambassador, this time to Taiwan, still recognized as China at the time. He served in this post from June 1962 until January 1963 under the Kennedy administration. Alan Goodrich Kirk passed away on October 15, 1963, having left behind an incredible military service record and diplomatic political career. Just a year before his death, he would be portrayed by actor John Malin in the famous film The Longest Day, starring John Wayne, a dramatization of the D-Day landings. Now, as I previously stated, the USS Kirk is a Knox-class destroyer escort, one of 46 completed. The Knox-class were the biggest, the final, and the most numerous of their second generation of anti-submarine warfare escorts. Ships that were part of this class were initially classified as ocean escorts, formerly called destroyer escorts. Although they were all given hull designations beginning with DE for destroyer escort, they would be redesignated to FF for frigate in 1975. The USS Kirk DE-1087 was laid down December 4, 1970 at the Avondale Shipyard in West Wego, Louisiana. This specific shipyard was founded in 1938 and mainly worked on building tugboats for the United States Maritime Commission in World War II. The shipyard would eventually get upgraded to receive contracts for destroyers and destroyer escorts. Avondale would continue building military vessels under contract for both the Korean and Vietnam Wars too. The last ship to depart from Avondale was the USS Somerset, LPD-25, an amphibious transport dock, on February 3, 2014. That same year, the shipyard closed for good. Now let's get into some of the specifications of the USS Kirk. Since she was a Knox-class destroyer escort, Kirk was one of the last ships in the US Navy to have a destroyer-type design with a steam turbine power plant. Kirk could reach a top speed of approximately 27 knots or 31 miles per hour. Kirk had a length of 438 feet, a beam of 46 feet 9 inches, and a draft of 24 feet 9 inches, with a total displacement of 3,221 tons, although that would be 4,065 tons with a full load. She held a complement of 16 officers and 200 enlisted men for a total crew of around 227. Kirk was much larger than her World War II-era counterparts, but was also a more modern rendition with better armaments and equipment. 
The USS Kirk was outfitted with one Mark 42 5-inch 54 caliber gun, a dual-purpose automatic gun mount with a fire rate of 40 rounds per minute. This is four times faster than the manually loaded 3-inch 50 caliber guns on many World War II destroyer escorts. Kirk also carried Mark 46 torpedoes in four single tube launchers, one Mark 16 8-cell missile launcher, and one Phalanx CIWS close-in weapon system. Kirk also had a helicopter pad on her deck, which was for its one SH-2 Sea Sprite helicopter. All these weapons were essential to the role USS Kirk played, being designed specifically for anti-submarine warfare. On September 25th, 1971, USS Kirk would be launched and christened by Mrs. Allen G. Kirk, widow of the, of the ship's namesake. On September 9, 1972, she was commissioned at Long Beach, California, with Commander James P. Cavederas given command. From there, she was assigned to Destroyer Squadron 2-3 in San Diego, California. Kirk would make her main voyage to Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada in November 1972. On November 23, 1973, USS Kirk would be in the company of USS Kitty Hawk CV-63, an aircraft carrier, more specifically a supercarrier, while making her way from San Diego out to the Western Pacific Ocean from her first deployment. Kirk would accompany Kitty Hawk, escorting her for about 60 days while operating in the Indian Ocean. She would eventually return to San Diego on June 1st, 1974. USS Kirk would eventually make her way back to the Western Pacific, Westpac, for a second deployment. It would be the second time that history would unfold before her and the sailors aboard. From what I have read in most of my research and direct testimony from Hugh Doyle, a former sailor aboard USS Kirk, the vessel never saw any direct combat during the Vietnam War. Instead, she would be part of two operations that many Americans would be eyewitness to and many others would see from their televisions at home. In 1975, the world was a very different place, and there was a lot happening in terms of the Cold War. Direct American involvement in the Vietnam War had whittled down to allow the South Vietnamese military, or ARVN, to take over operations completely and allow them to fight the encroaching communist threat. This policy of Vietnamization, starting in 1969 by the Nixon administration, did not go as planned as the United States had taken over so much of the fighting for such a long time. South Vietnamese forces simply weren't prepared nor well-equipped enough to face the North Vietnamese Army, or NVA. At the same time, Cambodia, another Southeast Asian nation with an anti-communist government, was also supported by the United States. They were having similar problems and couldn't hold back the infamous communist group, the Khmer Rouge, either, and slowly began to retreat towards their capital. Between late March and early May 1975, Evacuations were underway in both Cambodia and South Vietnam. Although the full extent of these operations wouldn't take precedence until April of the same year, on April 12, 1975, Operation Eagle Pull was put into effect and the evacuation of Phnom Penh, capital of Cambodia, began. Now the evacuation took place by initially using commercial airliners to transport American personnel and at-risk Cambodians out of the country. This would be vastly different to how events played out in Vietnam. On March 3, 1975, Task Group 76 was off the shores of Cambodia, ready to send helicopter squadrons to pick up embassy workers, American personnel, and then Cambodians. USS Kirk was part of this task force, but as an escort ship to provide naval gunfire and an area defense. She was designed for anti-submarine warfare, and was also prepared for anti-air in that possible case too. Alongside her would be the destroyers USS Edson and Henry B. Wilson, as well as fellow destroyer escort USS Knox, the lead ship of her class of destroyer escorts that Kirk was a part of. Since the majority of evacuations was done through the means of commercial air, the Kirk played a smaller role in what was dubbed a small-scale dress rehearsal for the next operation. Just two weeks later, another, more famous operation began, known as Operation Frequent Wind. 
On April 30th, 1975, North Vietnamese army units had reached the city limits of Saigon and American forces were getting out all of their personnel along with their families. After that was complete, the next stage took place trying to get out as many South Vietnamese civilians as possible. Similar to what happened in Phnom Penh, one of the few ways out of the city was by air, usually in a helicopter. For the crew aboard USS Kirk, they would play a large role in saving many South Vietnamese refugees during these harrowing days. Kirk would be part of 7th Fleet Task Force 7-6, and their main objective was to receive refugees escaping South Vietnam. Kirk, along with approximately 50 total ships of the task force, was off the coast of South Vietnam, and what happened next would become one of the most unbelievable moments during the Vietnam War. I recently watched the documentary The Lucky Few on YouTube and read the book by the same name, so most of what I'm going to read are the testimonies and words from both the crewmen aboard Kirk and the refugees who were rescued by them. I also had the lucky opportunity to speak with former Kirk sailor Hugh Doyle about those events and what he and the other crewmen witnessed. I encourage those who are listening to watch the documentary and read the book if you haven't done so already. On April 29, 1975, what was originally supposed to be a somewhat similar operation to Eagle Pole in Cambodia changed very quickly. The crew of the USS Kirk were about to become part of something much bigger. During my discussion with Hugh Doyle, he explained that Operation Frequent Wind was supposed to be conducted similarly to Operation Eagle Pole. Essentially, there were four options for evacuation. The original plan was to conduct the evacuation by commercial air, that's how it played out in Cambodia. As the North Vietnamese began to encroach closer to Saigon, they bombarded airports and airbases, making it extremely dangerous. The second option was to use fixed-wing military aircraft that would fly out from Tan San Nut Air Base. Although multiple aircraft were able to leave the base packed with U.S. personnel and Vietnamese refugees, they were under constant attack from NVA forces, and eventually the Arvin soldiers defending the base were forced to surrender. The third option was to send ships up the Saigon River to the city, but the city was almost entirely encircled. Any ship that dared to go up the river would have to run a gauntlet of dodging incoming small arms and rocket fire from the North Vietnamese, and so that option was off the table. The fourth and final option that would be the most widely remembered was to use helicopters. One of the most famous photographs of the conflict was the helicopter taking off from the U.S. Embassy roof in Saigon during the evacuation. For the crew aboard USS Kirk, they would see the fourth option in full effect. Suddenly, the sky above the task force was filled with helicopters, mostly UH-1 Iroquois or Hueys, flying overhead towards Kirk, all of them packed with refugee families. OS-2 James Bongard, an operations specialist working in the Combat Information Center, or CIC, recalls what happened. All of a sudden, dots come racing out, dots across the radar screen just coming across. They're too fast to mark. What are these things? We're calling up the bridge, asking for visuals, and they say, well, we've got helicopters coming in. And there were just swarms of them. They'd come in waves. The radar aboard USS Kirk was picking up dozens of Huey and Chinook helicopters, whose pilots were carrying their families and friends to safety. USS Kirk was tasked to help these helicopters land safely and get their passengers on board. AW-3 Donald Cox, Air Warfare, LAMPS Detachment, also recalls that day, saying, We knew an evacuation was going on, and with each helicopter that would pass us, we had an open deck. USS Kirk did have a small flight deck for its SH-2 helicopter, and sooner rather than later, it would become a landing pad for the Hueys above them. Crewmen began to ponder the idea of using it for the refugees to land their birds. 30-year-old Lieutenant Hugh Doyle, Chief Engineer, pondered this idea. We had this relatively small flight deck, and we never anticipated a helicopter landing on us, but we started talking about it. Wouldn't it be great to grab a helicopter? Wouldn't it be great? It would be a great idea. And from there, the crewman of the Kirk jumped into action. First class doorkeeper, Jeffrey T. Swan, actually spoke a little Vietnamese and they began to broadcast an on-the-air distress frequency for the helicopter pilots to hear the following message. Ship 1087, land here. Approximately 20 minutes later, 
Airman Gerald McClellan waved the first Huey on the flight deck of the USS Kirk. Refugees began to pour out and were all disarmed as they arrived. Just a few moments later, a second helicopter landed, and then a third just moments after that. Same as before, refugees, old and young, were brought on deck. According to Hugh Doyle, you could see them at various levels, all what they call short final, all waiting to land. Although the crew had just saved dozens of lives aboard only three helicopters, there was a growing issue. There were dozens more waiting to land and the flight deck was already filled with already landed helicopters. Kirk's crew had to act quickly if they were going to successfully coordinate the rest of the evacuation. Commander Paul Jacobs, captain of USS Kirk, gave the order over the side. Sailors, both enlisted and officers, including Commander Jacobs, leaped to action. Everyone lent a hand and thus began to push the three helicopters over the side of the ship to help make room for more to land. MM3 Kent Chipman, machinist mate, goes into detail about the flight deck. On our flight deck is a nine skid surface, so our helicopter had rubber wheels, but the Hueys had metal skids and it was like sandpaper, and they were very hard to move. It would take 20 or 30 guys to move it from side to side and wiggle it. Lieutenant Robert Lemke, Destroyer Squadron 2-3 staff, discussed the issue as well. You push the helicopter, and it would sit on over to the edge, and as it went over more and more, it would finally fall over, flip over on its back. For perspective, the maximum takeoff weight for a Huey helicopter is about 10,500 pounds. So the group of sailors would be trying to push thousands of pounds of material over the side of the ship almost constantly to keep making room for more helicopters to land that would eventually have to be pushed off as well. Afterwards, the helicopter would plunge into the sea and sit in the water for a bit with its main rotor beneath it. After about 15 to 20 seconds, the helicopter would submerge underneath the waves. According to Ken Chipman, you could hear the helicopters coming, and it got louder and louder as they got closer, and as they approached you, you could see the people in them. They were just crammed in as tight as you could get. For perspective, the UH-1 Huey was designed to carry 15 occupants, but for those who were determined to escape, desperation set in, and many of these helicopters would be overloaded without any thought as to safety at the time. With so many refugees being brought on board, Kirk's crew had set up a tarp to provide shade for those on deck. It was important to keep an eye on how many people there were to make sure no one wandered off, got separated from family, or went overboard. There was still a possible threat looming. As Saigon is currently in crisis and all these helicopters are packed with civilians and being flown by South Vietnamese servicemen, Who's out there to stop the NVA? There was the worry that the North Vietnamese Air Force may launch an attack against the task force to disrupt the evacuation and inflict casualties as there was almost no one to stop them. According to Hugh Doyle, up to that point, our mission was anti-air warfare. We were supposed to picket, run up a picket line back and forth, be prepared to defend against North Vietnamese aircraft that would try to intervene in the evacuation. We were concerned about small boats, perhaps, so we were still thinking about shooting. As soon as the first helicopter landed, though, it all changed because there were women and children aboard. Luckily, for the crew of the USS Kirk and the South Vietnamese civilians, no attack ever came. The NVA was too determined to capture Saigon to end the war decisively and symbolically. Along with words from Kirk sailors, there were several refugees from that day who discussed their experiences escaping from the mainland on the documentary. I feel that it is important to share what they said because their stories are as much a part of Kirk's history as the crew's. One refugee, Mickey Nguyen, 
was just six and a half years old when his life would suddenly take a drastic turn. His father, Major Bonwin, was a helicopter pilot in the South Vietnamese Air Force, and he would bring all of his family to the Kirk. Mickey's mother, Nguyen, remembers that day saying, I hear the noise from the helicopter, Chinook helicopter. My husband flew them around the house a couple of times, so he landed on the soccer field in front of my mother-in-law's house. According to Mickey Nguyen, we were to grab our bags, get everything ready, and get on that helicopter. This was basically our chance, our ride out of the war. Bon Nguyen had just landed his CH-47 Chinook helicopter in his family's neighborhood and began to get friends and family on board. Mickey, along with his mother No, younger brother Mika, who was three and a half, and his younger sister, just 10 or 11 months old, and multiple other family members would take off in the Chinook and head for the Kirk. Mickey Nguyen describes the feelings they had that day. My mom would tell a different story. For her, very frightful, but for a six and a half year old boy, it was a sense of adventure. And one that for me, you know, will always sear in my memory as the epic moment. We call it the epic moment in our family. As a young boy caught in the midst of a war, it would have been very difficult for Mickey to understand the situation unfolding before his eyes. For Mickey's mother, it was about keeping her children safe and getting them out of the country. It was a difficult time for these people, but it is good that we have their testimonies to understand what they were feeling those days and how they made their escape. As the Chinook came closer to the ship, an issue began to arise. The helicopter is much larger than the Huey and Sea Sprite and wouldn't be able to fit on the deck. The crew had to act quickly to find a solution. Lieutenant Commander Robert McKenna, Executive Officer or Second in Command, began to act. He started to take volunteers, including MM3 Kent Chipman, to help the passengers. The plan began to unfold. The Chinook would have to hold its position across the fantail of the ship with its cockpit to port and its tail to starboard. Bon Win had to maintain a safe enough distance for the rotors to clear the flight deck above, but also remain low enough to the fantail deck for the passengers to disembark. He ordered his co-pilot to open his door on the right side of the Chinook for passengers to exit. The volunteers on deck would have to stand underneath the helicopter, facing the immense power of the downwash from the rotors blowing on them. They would have to catch or break the fall of passengers as they jumped. Kent Shipman recalls, As I looked up, I wasn't sure exactly what was going to happen, but all of a sudden, here comes a human. It was a baby. There was no way I was going to let that baby hit the deck. And... I caught a young woman, and she didn't hit the deck either. No Nguyen recalls, I saw some crewmen down there catch. I see the sailors, two or three of them, catch me. Kent Chipman helped catch multiple members of the Wynn family, including Mickey's baby sister who had to be dropped out of the Chinook and their mother No as she leaped afterwards. Mickey recalls how he felt after being caught and now safely aboard. It was a happy moment. I would say that's a first step upon freedom, upon stepping on the deck of the USS Kirk. With almost everyone off the Chinook, then came a truly difficult feat. Bon Nguyen remained and began to fly his helicopter to the starboard side of Kirk. He lowered the Chinook just above the water level holding the helicopter's cyclic control between his knees, easing the six tires just feet above the water. Keeping his aircraft in a stable hover, he removed his holstered pistol and struggled to get out of his flight suit. Afterwards, he swung the emergency handle on the left side door forward, opening it 90 degrees, then letting it fall into the ocean. Depressing the thumb button on the cyclic control, Bon Nguyen moved to the far right, then released the button. As the heli began to swing right, he leaped out of the left side door into the water. Donald Cox, having witnessed the whole event played out, stated the following, 
before I could get to the rail to jump into the water, bodies of our Kirk crewmen are jumping into the water. They had taken their shoes off and then jumped fully clothed into the water, and it was just raining people in to save this little man that was floating in the water. The helicopter had almost settled directly on top of him, and our motor whaleboat raced out to find him. Before 8pm that night, eight more helicopters would land on the USS Kirk, all filled with refugee families. A total of 13 helicopters landed on deck, and all were seemingly pushed overboard into the ocean to make room for the increasing number of refugees brought on board. Although their mission had changed, the crewmen had adapted very quickly and acted in the best way they knew how, and saved many lives that day. But it wasn't over yet, and the next day, the crew of the USS Kirk would face their biggest challenge yet. In the early morning hours of April 30th, 1975, the crew saved a couple more lives. Two marine pilots were found adrift in the waters and were brought on board. It just so happened that their AH-1J Cobra gunship had run out of fuel and had crashed into the ocean. Interestingly enough, this would be the final gunship that was lost during the Vietnam War. At half past noon on the same day, Kirk rendezvoused with the SS Greenport. From there, they transferred the 157 refugees they had saved the day before, as they were not designed to hold so many people and care for them. At 9.30pm, USS Kirk had received a cryptic message via a secure voice radio. Commander Paul Jacobs was ordered by Rear Admiral Donald Whitmore, commander of Task Force 76, to send out his motor whaleboat. They were sent to the Joint Task Force flagship, USS Blue Ridge, to pick up a mysterious person who would join the crew on their next unknown task. The man they brought aboard was Richard Armitage, Special Agent of the Department of Defense. He reported his orders to Commander Jacobs, telling him that the ship had been given orders to turn around and go back towards South Vietnam. Their mission was now to rescue what remained of the South Vietnamese Navy. Unknown to the crew, this mission had already been planned out several days in advance. Richard Armitage had been in contact with his friend, Captain Kim Do of the South Vietnamese Navy. They didn't want to risk their remaining ships falling into communist hands because anybody on board, soldiers or civilians, were at risk of being massacred. They decided on a meeting point, Kansan Island, approximately 60 miles south of the mainland. Any and all ships and boats that could make it there would have to wait for the USS Kirk. The USS Kirk had arrived at Kansan Island on May 1st, and they had discovered an extremely dire situation. There were approximately 30 ships along with civilian fishing boats and other watercraft that had made it to the meeting point to wait for help. It is believed that the total number of people was around 31,000. Many of them had been there for days, some ships anchored, others just floating around. No food, no water, and people were packed like sardines in a can. Commander Jacobs recalls, this is going to be an insurmountable problem. Internal to me, I said, oh my god, how are we going to pull this off? Regardless, Kirk had been given their mission, and Commander Jacobs stated in an interview, I got on the 1MC and briefed the crew on what we're going to be doing, and it's going to be purely humanitarian. That crew was very special. I could ask that crew to do anything, and they would do it. Eventually, they were joined by fellow Knox-class destroyer, USS Cook, DE-1083, at around noon on May 1st. On May 2nd, a landing ship tank, USS Tuscaloosa, LST-1187, and three other vessels, USS Abnaki, ATF-96, USS Deliver, ARS-23, and USNS Lippin, AT-85, also joined the flotilla to provide support. This ragtag task force would have to guide over two dozen ships filled with thousands of refugees away from South Vietnam through the South China Sea until they reached their destination, Subic Bay, the Philippines. Before the convoy could get underway, the crew and Richard Armitage had to get a better understanding of the situation, and they slowly began to go ship by ship to determine what needed to be done next. According to Richard Armitage, some of these vessels had taken hits coming down the Saigon River. I do remember one LSM that was sinking. We pulled alongside it, 
we took people off by putting a wooden plank on which people had to walk off the sinking ship one at a time. One sailor on the sinking ship panicked, rushed across the plank, and pushed, as I recall, a younger girl, who was also on the plank, in between the two ships, and of course she was crushed to death. And that sailor was shot to death. This was a very grim moment during this operation, but while hearing Armitage's words, one can begin to understand the high levels of desperation all of these people had while trying to escape. And sadly, in this particular situation, someone has died. The sailor was shot by a South Vietnamese officer in an attempt to keep order on the ship and prevent a possible surge by more people that could have made the situation even more deadly. After the LSM was completely empty, the other ship pulled away, and the LSM was then sunk by gunfire from the Kirk. While all this is going on, there was still the ever-looming threat of a possible aircraft or boat attack from the North Vietnamese. Luckily, no attack ever came, and the operation continued, albeit as smoothly as it could. As the situation began to settle, the convoy eventually got underway, and they departed Kansan Island on May 2nd. The formation of the ships is described as the following. It was approximately five miles long from the vanguard to the rear. It sailed in two columns with 16 ships in each column. The two columns sailing parallel to each other were about one mile apart or possibly less according to Hugh Doyle. The main problem that couldn't be adjusted was the overall speed of the convoy. The way this works is that an entire naval convoy can only go as fast as its slowest ship. This is to ensure that no one is left behind, or in a worst case scenario, left to fend for themselves against an enemy attack. This particular convoy only traveled around 5 knots, or just under 6 miles per hour. The top speed of the USS Kirk was 27 knots, or 31 miles per hour. But its mission was to protect these ships and the people on board them. Even before the convoy was underway, there were problems the crew had to overcome. With so many people packed on board these ships, many of them were sick and hungry, so it would be their responsibility to care for all of them the best way they could. This responsibility was passed to HMC Stephen Burwinkle, chief hospital corpsman aboard the USS Kirk. They would make good use of their motor whaleboat or any swift boats available and move from ship to ship. According to Stephen Burwinkle, we used it to steam up and down the columns of the Vietnamese ships and I would go aboard a ship. I would see what I could as far as medical wise to help these people out. It was a difficult job, but someone had to do it. Stephen Burwinkle would spend hours screening whatever medical issues were at hand by chance, there was a South Vietnamese man named Joseph Pham who spoke fluent English. He essentially became the unofficial interpreter for Kirk and helped Stephen Burwinkle on his task. The situation was dire though, as the USS Kirk had little to no medical supplies to care for all these people. They didn't have the necessary supplies to even help those with specific conditions. Commander Paul Jacobs realized the appalling situation and was quick to act. He radioed the US 7th Fleet for assistance to provide them with supplies. The fleet responded by sending an HC-130 dropship to airdrop a package of supplies in the water. According to Hugh Doyle, they only made one airdrop, but it would help supply them for their long journey. Along with the countless number of sick people, there were also quite a few pregnant women on these ships, Joseph Pham's wife being one of them. Commander Jacobs ordered the pregnant women to be moved aboard Kirk to make their experience a little more calm and made it easier to check in on them. He had also appointed AW3 Donald Cox to help take care of the pregnant women and provide them with anything they needed. Commander Jacobs even visited the pregnant women every day, always showing a smile on his face to keep their spirits up. He was even trying to encourage at least one of the women to give birth on board Kirk. According to Burwinkle, there was one lady who went into labor, and I remember Falkenberg, HM3 Falkenberg, said, Chief, what are we going to do if one of these ladies has a baby? And I said, well, we're going to witness the miracle of birth. 
it's good to know that the crew were doing their best to keep spirits high, especially among these soon-to-be mothers. As much as Commander Jacobs wanted to happen, no babies were born on Kirk. As the days went by, this mission became very emotional for the sailors. Having to see so many people in such a difficult situation, just trying to survive, took a toll on them. Sadly, this convoy did not make it entirely through without tragedy. Since there were so many sick people packed on board these ships, many children among them became sick as well. There was a one-year-old boy named Baule who was sick with pneumonia. He was listless and lethargic when he began to receive medical treatment. He was initially bathed with alcohol to help bring down his temperature, which had reached 106 degrees. Then, he was given a pediatric dose of penicillin, which inevitably cured him of his illness. Sadly, he would pass away while being fed by his mother. Stephen Berwinkle recalls the tragic day. We had a young boy who had pneumonia, and we figured out the pediatric dose, and he was basically cured of his pneumonia. A pediatric dose of penicillin. But unfortunately, in the act of feeding him, he coughed or somehow aspirated what his mother was feeding him, and he died. A decision was made to hold a funeral service for the young boy, and the crewmen did the best they could to make it as respectable as possible for the grieving family. Hugh Doyle was one of the men sent out to retrieve the rest of the boy's family in the convoy, and to bring them aboard for the service. Commander Paul Jacobs describes the scene. We all got dressed up in our formal uniforms and conducted a burial at sea at night, and it was profoundly emotional. All the crew members who were not on watch were back there, and it was just well done, and I think the Vietnamese family really appreciated how we handled that situation. Hugh Doyle remembered it, stating, It was a very touching, uncomfortable situation. Donald Cox was also present at the funeral service, stating, We performed the service in the most professional manner that we could, us not having done it before, but if you would follow the directions of Captain Jacobs and in playing taps, it really hit home what these people were going through. It was an emotional event for both the sailors and the refugees. Everyone had been through such an ordeal within the last few days, but it was a very respectful action by the crew of the USS Kirk. As the convoy began to approach Filipino waters by May 5th, an issue began to arise. The Filipino government initially refused to allow the ships to enter Subic Bay because just a few days earlier, they had recognized the legitimacy of the North Vietnamese government and their entire control over the country of Vietnam. So the refugees packed on board these vessels were viewed as citizens of the new communist government who had objected to their escape. The Philippines did not want to trigger a possible diplomatic and international crisis, and thus, a solution had to be met. After constant deliberation between the U.S. Navy's 7th Fleet, the U.S. Embassy in Manila, and the State and Defense Departments in Washington, they had finally reached an agreement on how to move forward with the operation. The majority of the South Vietnamese naval ships in the convoy had actually once been in U.S. naval service. So, because these ships were once owned by the United States, they could be returned. At around 10 a.m. May 6th, 39 sailors had embarked on the South Vietnamese ships to take control of them, 9 officers and 30 enlisted personnel. As they did so, they brought U.S. flags to raise in lieu of the South Vietnamese flag. Before the change, there was another task at hand. Some of these ships, especially LSTs, had large and small caliber arms on board and had to be disarmed and their ammunition tossed overboard. Everything, from pistols, rifles, and large-caliber ammunition, was all sent overboard. 
Hugh Doyle recalls that day, saying, Those LSTs that we had to disarm were full of weapons. It was incredible the weapons aboard these ships. They all went into the South China Sea. We had to throw them over the side. It was a very busy day, day and a half, of disarming that fleet. Next came the step of changing the flags. Lieutenant Frederick Sauter, officer in charge, Lamps Detachment, was on board one of these vessels and took part in the ceremony. Lieutenant Frederick Sauter stated, A boat came by and delivered the packet with the American flag, and the ceremony was to be done with as much dignity as possible. Captain Kim Do also witnessed the ceremony, stating, Captain Kim Do also witnessed the ceremony, stating, And a young officer came on board our ship and said, You'll have to lower the flag and hoist the American flag up and sail in. I asked him, I said, We lost everything. We lost our country. We lost our pride. But please do a last favor for us. Try to have a ceremony of down the flag and raise the flag up. A ceremony that would save us some face. And we had a very emotional ceremony. All the people flocked to the deck, sang the national anthem, crying at the same time to lower the flag, and then raised the American flag ceremoniously. As the South Vietnamese flags, the gold with three red bars came down, and the American stars and stripes went up, it was seemingly the end. South Vietnam officially ceased to exist. One day later, on May 7th, 1975, USS Kirk moored at Wharf West portside to USS Benjamin Stoddard in Subic Bay. After five days and over 1,000 miles across the South China Sea, the crewmen aboard Kirk had successfully completed their humanitarian mission, saving thousands of lives. The USS Kirk continued its naval service, and on June 30th, 1975, the same year these operations took place, she would be reclassified from a destroyer escort, DE-1087, to a frigate, FF-1087. Later in its service, Kirk would change its home port from San Diego, California, to Yokosuka, Japan. She was underway to the Western Pacific on July 17, 1976, eventually arriving in August. After an incident at the DMZ in the Korean Peninsula, Kirk would be deployed to patrol Korean waters on August 21st, but would be part of no hostilities. By October of the same year, Kirk would require a lot of upkeep, eventually beginning a major overhaul in January 1977. She would be moved to dry dock for seven months, and within that time, would receive the meritorious unit citation for her services in Operation Frequent Wind. In 1978, she was sent to the Indian Ocean for a three-month deployment, and later on would become the first U.S. naval ship to visit Taichung, Taiwan in August. Eventually, she would get underway once again, taking part in Redex 1-79 as part of Task Force 77.4, including Battle Group Midway, CV-41, from late September to early October. In September 1979, Kirk went through some updates to her equipment. She was installed with a Harpoon missile system and an AN-SQR-18A sonar system. With the new equipment on board and after some more dry docking, she would be sent on anti-submarine warfare operations in the South China Sea in February 1980. That same year, she would sail with Task Group 70.1 for operations in the Indian Ocean for about four and a half months. Once again, departing Yokosuka in 1981, she would be sent back to the Indian Ocean for her fourth deployment, joining the carrier USS Midway. She then began to steam towards the Arabian Sea to conduct exercise Indo-Gonzo for a few days in mid-April alongside Australian naval forces. In December of that year, she was ordered back to the Korean Peninsula to rendezvous with TG Task Group 70.1 due to possible threat from North Korea. No threat ever materialized though, and Kirk will return to her home. 
In December of that year, she was ordered back to the Korean Peninsula to rendezvous with TG Task Group 70.1 due to possible threat from North Korea. No threat ever materialized though, and Kirk would return to her home port once again. In January 1982, Kirk entered dry dock and began her baseline overhaul for most of that year. In March 1983, she took part in exercise Team Spirit 8-3 at Chinhae, South Korea. On November 21st, 1983, Kirk would be part of a rescue mission in the South China Sea. The Taiwanese merchant ship Dai Lung had sunk after taking on water during Typhoon Orchid and her crew abandoned ship. Kirk was able to rescue 23, some sources state the number as 24, of the 25-man crew. They then brought the survivors to Subic Bay and turned them over to embassy officials. On April 16, 1984, Kirk joined Battle Group Alpha led by USS Midway in the North Arabian Sea. She then crossed the equator on the 19th and afterwards inducted polywogs in the Mysteries of the Deep. It's an old naval tradition where those who have not crossed the equator before are put through a series of initiation rites, sometimes involving embarrassing tasks, gags, or physical hardships. Once the ceremony is complete, the sailors are inducted into King Neptune's court as trusted shellbacks. It's a rite of passage, but the event is still conducted, although voluntarily and mainly to boost morale than anything else. During this whole ordeal, she would spend 110 consecutive days out to sea. In those days, she conducted operations with the following, the Royal Navy, Royal Omani Air Force, Royal Malaysian Navy, and French Navy. She only made port twice, Singapore in late April, and Patea, Thailand in the first week of May before returning to Yokosuka in June. Kirk did conduct surveillance operations of the Russian Novorossiysk Battle Group in April 1985, but nothing further than that. While underway to Subic Bay in June, Kirk's bow was struck by a rogue wave that did injure seven personnel, which required her to return to port for medical assistance. On July 13th, she recovered Lieutenant Commander J.M. Twiss, a downed LTV A7 Corsair II pilot from USS Midway. Six days later, she evacuated a medically ill Burmese sailman. Six days later, she evacuated a medically ill Burmese seaman from the merchant vessel Tomo 305. After conducting exercise Fire X-1 in July 1986, the frigate rescued 11 Vietnamese refugees from a fishing boat that went adrift in the South China Sea. Just one year later, she became the third U.S. warship to visit Borneo. One year after that, she would be on another rescue mission. Just before Typhoon Vanessa hit the South China Sea in June 1988, the frigate rescued another nine Vietnamese refugees who were about 300 nautical miles east of Ho Chi Minh City, formerly Saigon. In August 1988, she would change operational commands by joining the U.S. 3rd Fleet and made her way back to the United States. She took part in San Francisco's Fleet Week celebrations in October and finally returned to her new home port in Long Beach, California. She continued conducting anti-submarine warfare exercises, sometimes alongside the Royal Canadian Navy through the end of the 1980s and into 1990. She suffered from constant equipment malfunctions that continually delayed her deployment schedule, but finally got underway to Panama in December. She stopped in Guatemala for fuel and became the first U.S. naval warship to refuel at Puerto Quetzal. The frigate spent Christmas in Panama and New Year's Day off the coast of Guatemala. At this time, the frigate was conducting surface and air surveillance, keeping an eye out for narcotics trafficking groups. She continued conducting counter-narcotic operations off South America in 1991, then returned to Long Beach in late January. She then acted as a plane guard for the USS Abraham Lincoln CVN-72, and then as a plane guard for the USS Independence CV-62 in the same year at two different times. Kirk spent her first four months at port in Long Beach in 1992, but then got underway to participate in Computex 92-4E off the coast of Southern California. She then prepared for another Westpac deployment, this time with Battle Group Ranger CV-61. She made a port visit to Pusan, South Korea, and then was supposed to stop in Singapore. This changed, however, 
as tensions began to rise in the Middle East, and she steamed towards the Arabian Gulf. In that time, she narrowly avoided both Typhoon Polly and Omar, but the storms did damage her sea surface search radar, and she was forced to stop in Beiran for repairs in September. After that was complete, she joined USS Kincaid DD-965 at Al-Jubail, Saudi Arabia, and both participated in Exercise Nautical Swimmer alongside the Royal Saudi Navy. Later in October, she took part in Exercise Sakhar al-Bar with guided missile frigate USS Taylor, FFG-50, and then began a two-week operation in the Gulf of Oman and the Arabian Gulf. The frigate operated with Battle Group HMS Invincible of the Royal Navy during a round-the-world cruise. Kirk then became somewhat of a last-minute addition to exercise Eager Sentry with USS Paul F. Foster, DD-964, off the coast of Kuwait in November. Kirk would return to Long Beach in early 1993. On August 6, 1993, the USS Kirk would be decommissioned and leased to the Republic of China Navy in Taiwan. She was renamed ROCS Fenyang FF-934. She was struck from the Naval Vessel Register on January 11, 1995. She was finally purchased by Taiwan on September 29, 1999. Although Kirk is no longer serving in the US Navy, it is good to know that she is still afloat. It is with great hope that one day she may return from her service to Taiwan and perhaps become a museum ship just like the USS Slater. At least that way we can preserve her history, the stories of the many sailors who served aboard her, and the thousands of refugees she helped save. Despite being designed for warfare, it seems that Kirk was much better at saving lives. Thank you for listening to DE Classified. I'd like to thank Carl Frick for allowing me to join the USS Kirk Facebook group for a chance to speak with former sailors. And a special thank you to Hugh Doyle for chatting with me and providing some amazing stories from his service on Kirk. Thank you, Hugh. This podcast is brought to you by the Destroyer Escort Historical Museum aboard USS Slater. You can find a transcript of this episode, accompanying photos, and a bibliography at ussslater.org slash declassified. I am Giordano Romano, and I hope you join us next month to DE Classify USS Holder.